Hello and welcome to Dungeon Regular, a show about modules, adventures, and dungeons. I'm Nova, also known as Idle Cartillery, and I'm reading through Dungeon Magazine one module at a time. I'll summarize that module, talk about its strengths and weaknesses, and then talk about a few interesting things about it that could be used at the table or impact your own homebrew design. Today I'm going to talk about Into the Fire by Grant and David Beaucher in issue number one, September 1986. This is a monster module. It has a bountiful backstory, a considerable wilderness, with accompanying random encounter tables, two dungeons to delve into. It's a classic module in structure, with the exception of no central town being detailed here. This module would fit well in any campaign, and has a bunch of potentially interesting factions and characters throughout the wilderness that would make it suitable for OSC, CAN, or Dungeon Crawl classics, although it's aimed at higher level characters, so levelless games such as CAN would benefit from being generous with drawing attention to the magical items scattered throughout the module. What can we take back to our campaign from Into the Fire, even if we don't use it in our home campaign? Number one, the complex multi-layered backstory. Into the Fire has a very convoluted backstory, which summarizes something like, the prince is kidnapped by pirates and sold in a savory. A dragon ate the pirates and stole his necklace of princehood. Some knights were eaten by the dragon, but one escaped with the necklace, coincidentally. The knight was saved by gnomes, who brought his body back to the king. The king wants the PCs to investigate the whereabouts of the missing prince and whatever slew the knights, but the gnomes won't say where they live or where they found the knight. Look, honestly, I kind of love it. The problem is it doesn't really come into play. The sea is nowhere to be seen, especially. The prince is not a part of this story. There is no clear way to tease out half the story. If I were to run this, I'd realize a version of this story where the prince was taken by a band of merry thieves that plagued the region and became one of them. The thieves still plagued the region, but owe tribute to the dragon Flame, and so turned the prince's necklace over to her. This way, if I were to write a short D6 rumor table for this adventure, suddenly it's possible to find out where the prince is, what happened to him, who the brigands are, etc., etc., and the complex story becomes something the players unravel instead of something simply that happens off-screen. Number two, two maps. We don't get it enough. Two wilderness maps here, both of them pretty great. One is a trace of the other, chicken scratch for the players in a pleasing way, where the other is a topographical map of the area with all the key locations on it. I just don't know why this isn't standard practice for every wilderness module. The players should be handed an incomplete map every time. Providing an incomplete map turns wilderness exploration into a puzzle that's solvable, rather than something that's railroaded by GM direction like... Uh, yeah, there are giant tracks leading this way, or by random chance, I guess we go north. It's a simple, clear way to provide minimal viable information from which the puzzle can be solved. You can even introduce spatial puzzles and rumors by using a map like this. Wait, that's the Lone Tree Hill? The night was discovered in the valley above Lone Tree Hill. Giving the players their own map provides limitless potential for additional aspects of play. Number three, wilderness. This is such an interesting and varied wilderness. There are a number of encounter tables, there are eight locations, there are three factions, that with a little explication would be really compelling drivers of story in the area, particularly taking into account the human inhabitants which feel underwritten in this. It's the absolute minimum, I think, to make a wilderness of this size feel real and dynamic without it actually needing to be. And because it feels really fresh and dynamic, it's probably worth breaking down the scale. Two separate terrains, two encounter tables for each one for night and one for day. 
two major key locations with their own maps, three challenging environments and three location-based factions. No overlap between locations and random encounters, and lots of random encounters that rather than combat encounters are counters that represent the world. I think that this particular mix of random encounters, key locations, terrains, and factions makes for a really compelling wilderness, and it's something that really could you use as a model for our building our own wildernesses that feel fresh and dynamic. Number four, the world building. The world building here is compelling, if a little incomplete. I'll dig into one detail that I find really interesting, which is why the dragon has suddenly started interfering with the kingdom. It's connected to the random encounters. The kingdom the players are a part of is expanding, and pioneers are heading to the mountains to the west. There have never been enough people to murder before, so suddenly the dragon is coming east of the mountains, rather than west, to eat these pioneers. The fact that this is never really explicated, but is implicit in the storytelling and mentioned in the dragon's character description, is just a juicy piece of world-building to me. What I really want is peppering of this throughout the world a little more heavily, because I can't see this ever coming across to the players. If there were a few pioneer homesteads or settlements in this wilderness to supplement the travelling pioneers on the random encounter tables, this sense of a western expansion and the consequences of it impinging on a dragon's territory would have brought a fun political element to the party's negotiations with the king. Number five, the factions. My refrain in the modules I've reviewed so far is that the characters aren't developed even with a line or two, and I find that here for the factions. If the fire giants, boulder people, magical wolfman and king's men had simple goals and reasons why they're there, suddenly this wilderness becomes a power keg ready to explode. It doesn't take much. If I ran this, it would be a really low-effort way to add a punch to this wilderness. And number six, the dungeons. Honestly, the dungeons here are just fine. Nothing too out of the ordinary, nothing particularly special. What I really like is how well the dragon, her actions, and her responses to invasion are very clearly described, and how the dungeon itself is set up for her to take advantage of, and for the players to take advantage of as well. This and traps here that Flame will attempt to take advantage of if she's aware of the player's whereabouts. But if the players discover them first, and Flame is asleep, then they can set them up to trigger for her and improve their chances of defeating the dragon. This is just a really neat way of setting up a dungeon so that everything in it works two ways, and that the terms of engagement could be reversed if you so chose. That's Into the Fire in a nutshell. I hope that you'll join me for the next episode of Dungeon Regular. If you have any questions, please reach out. I'm on Twitter, Blue Sky, and Mastodon at IdleCartillery, and I write reviews and blog at playfulvoid.game.blog. If you'd like to support Dungeon Regular, please visit my Ko-fi at ko-fi forward slash IdleCartillery. You can make a one-off donation or become a member. Members are prioritized for their questions to be included in the Dungeon Regular Mailbag episodes, the first of which will be coming soon can make suggestions for future bathtub reviews and get to see bathtub reviews a week in advance on my Kofi before they go public. Our theme music is an extract from Turning the Page by Kirk Osamaya on the free music archive used under a Creative Commons license. Thank you for listening to Dungeon Regular.